Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is Need to Know. Real talk about the reality of unidentified aerial phenomena. From Australia, Ross Coltart. From the US, Bryce Zabel. Hello all and welcome to our latest episode of Need to Know. I'm Ross Coulthard. Now, last week's show about the potentially harmful UAP contact with humans really struck a nerve. And we've got some follow-ups on that in a moment. But first, let's swing our cameras across to my mate in dusty Los Angeles, Bryce Sable. G'day, Bryce. Good deal, Roscoe. Thank you. It's not that dusty here, although uh, we haven't had rain for a while and we're not out to get any for a while. So it's it's getting dustier by the moment. You know, for this show, folks, what we're going to be doing is uh, pivoting to an area that may seem a little lighter, if you will, than last week's, which probably wouldn't be that hard. But it actually does raise uh, some highly important questions. Uh, the issue that we're going to take on is just simply rock stars who have either experienced the phenomenon themselves or have shown a deep interest in the phenomenon. And in our next segment, we're going to be talking about Blink-182's Tom DeLonge. And in the last segment, we'll focus on John Lennon and his famous UFO sighting. And believers, there really is something quite interesting in both of those stories that has a pertinence to today's events that is very important. But first, I just want to acknowledge an amazing story that our friend and colleague Tim McMillan ran on the website The Debrief this week. Tim's pretty good with his scoops, and he picked with this one, this one up this week, and it's a whopper. It's a it's a vindication of Lou Elizondo. I I first met Lou in person last year at his home in Wyoming, and the poor fella had just been visited by the um, defence security people, and he was still rattled from that meeting. He was being given a hard time, frankly, by investigators in defence. And frankly, I don't think people realise how bloody hard it's been for the former head of the UAP UFO investigation program in the Pentagon, Lou Elizondo. He's suffered badly because of, frankly, a guy at the helm of the Defence Department, a guy called Gary Reid, who was the head of Defence Intelligence until, that is, earlier this month. He, he got, got fired. <laughs> I he mean, got it's fired for a whole... It's a great, uh, it's a great story from Tim McMillan. And, uh, you know, the, the Gary Reid part of it, it the, it's very interesting how the, the story is written. There are three parts to why he got fired, apparently. One part is he was the guy... Uh, who was at least the fall guy for the Afghanistan withdrawal here in the United States and how it didn't come off the way anybody hoped it would come off. Uh, the other was how he had uh, campaigned against Lou Elizondo for quite some time from the beginning. And that was interesting. And then the third part was uh, a sexual harassment claim that had and claims rather that had been made against him. And it was interesting, Ross, because uh, I read the article. I Part of me wanted to say you've buried the lead because I really wanted to read about the Elizondo stuff. And it started with uh, quite a bit about the uh, sexual harassment. But but I don't know, maybe that's what you got to do to get somebody out. But I couldn't be happier that he's gone. You know what always amazes me as an Australian uh, cultured in the British system of law, we have these horrible defamation laws in our country, which means that even if we knew about a sexual harassment claim made against a senior public servant, there is absolutely no way we would be able to report it the way this was reported by Tim. I, I don't think you Americans realise how lucky you are that you can report stuff like that and not get your pants sued off. But let, let's come to the, the details because yeah. I think it's very important to talk about this. This is actually momentous. It's, it's very easy to be flippant about what's happened here. But Elizondo has repeatedly 
claimed that he was being white-anted, that he was being undermined by people inside the defence intelligence organisations. And he has been vindicated in this finding from the Inspector General, who has essentially adjudicated that there, there have been times when misrepresentations have been made. And the reason why this is significant is because there are, how does one put this, journalists or purported journalists or commentators who have chosen to slavishly run the Pentagon line without question, without testing those allegations with their own sources. And so I suspect that there have been certain people in ufology who have been used by people inside the Pentagon to essentially undermine the credibility of Elizondo. And Elizondo's victory this week with the sacking of Gary Reed is a vindication, not just for him, but also for UFO, UAP transparency. This is the guy, Reed, who's been allegedly, according to the article and according to Elizondo, blocking a lot of the push for transparency inside the Defence Department. He's been directly influencing, and I suspect directing, the statements that were made by the Pentagon spokeswoman on this, Susan Goff. So it's going to be very interesting to see whether Susan Goff survives this purge and whether or not other people inside the defence hierarchy are now feeling nervous about the, the potential consequences for their position on this issue. It's, it's actually hugely significant, this, and it's coming at a time when we're on the cusp of finding out whether or not the Congress is going to do any kind of hearings into UAPs. Uh, could it very well be that this is the precursor to that decision? Well, it certainly seems like action is happening. I can only imagine, by the way, the kind of relief that Lou Elizondo must be personally feeling at this time. <laughs> Excuse me. You know, in our last episode, we were talking about Lou and how he's been frustrated with some of the personal attacks that have been made and how the fact that he actually did these things that he's claimed he's done and people were still giving him a grief about it. Well, that's been resolved largely by uh, this article and the action taken. In a way, I, I, I kind of feel it, 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 you know, when the, the, the June 25th, 2021 uh, preliminary report on UAP came out, it kind of removed something from the discourse that was helpful. It removed the idea that the people in charge didn't think any of this was real because it said, yes, we think UAP is real. It didn't actually answer what they were, but it said at least they were real. That was good. And now what's sort of happening with Lou is at least we're feeling like, okay, well, he's pretty much what he said he was. Enough people have vouched for him that we can start to pay closer and closer attention to what he's saying and less attention to what UFO Twitter is saying about him and actually start to get to work on this issue of transparency. And, and honestly, but, I but think that's the are, issue. That's yeah. The yeah. That's the thing that has been really interesting, though, because whilst people like yourself and I, we, we've accepted that Lou was who he says he was, What's been really interesting is this disinformation that's been run yes. from the Pentagon, and I suspect in part from Gary Reed's office, to suggest bullshit things like, oh, Lou Elizondo was never the head of a UFO, UAP investigation right. program inside the Pentagon. There have been direct attacks on his credibility, uh, questions raised about the assertions that he's made by senior people in defence to try to undermine his reputation in the public eye. And this is why the Reed sacking is so significant, because it's sending a chilling message to anybody else inside the defence hierarchy who now tries to essentially lie and deceive the public. You know, everything, any any defense official now is going to be held for account. I just hope you are 100% right about that. Uh, the question I still have about it, though, is we hear continually how the Navy is more forthcoming than the Air Force. Well, they're both part of the Department of Defense. And if the DOD is uh, still intent on dragging its feet, then they're certainly not going to be kicking the Air Force to get to work. That's why... I thought the 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 words the two words you just spoke that really spoke to me were congressional hearings. Are we potentially getting closer to that happening? Because uh, if if we have even 
even, uh, well, if there are hearings that are classified, just knowing they're happening is good. But I think we need uh, the open hearings, some public hearings, so that people can really start to wrap their heads around the fact that we've, we're dealing with something authentic. Yeah, frankly, I don't think anybody from the mainstream media is really going to engage with this subject until the whistleblowers, some of whom I'm speaking to, and I know you you know of some of them as well, I don't think there will be any movement from the mainstream press until people on oath are saying things that make the mainstream media sit up and go, wow, well, this really is real. Absolutely. And and in addition to that, what has Lou Elizondo, the I guess the recently cleared Lou Elizondo, had to say about this? He keeps saying that heads are going to roll. I mean, he said it yeah. in so many words. He intimates it uh, most times when he speaks. Uh, that that laws probably have been broken in terms of keeping this yep. from the American public and the world, and that uh, there's going to be consequences. And he has made and it now ahead. Like, now ahead has rolled. Yeah, ahead has. Now there has been a head rolled. And, yeah. and, wow. and, and if I was a if I was a if I was a general who has lied to the president, because as as you and I have talked about in previous podcasts, I think presidents have been lied to. I, yes. I think Congress has been deliberately misled. There's quite a clear trail of evidence to show that even the admissions that have now been made by the Pentagon in that June 25th report last year, the preliminary assessment, they directly contradict assertions that have been made by the US Air Force and senior members of that organisation for much of the last 30 or 40 years. So is it going to be the case that we're now going to see other heads rolling inside the Pentagon, well, people who've now who've been lying for so long and now going to be held to account? I think we've got two things we're watching at this point. One is heads that are rolling, but that's an internal uh, Department of Defense thing where uh, you and I can't fire anybody there. And frankly, Congress isn't about to fire anybody in the Department of Defense. It's got to be the DOD that sets steps forward and does that for their own particular reasons. And the second thing we're watching is there seems to be a growing group of people in Congress, not only in the House, but also in the Senate, who apparently feel that... Uh, Forget whether the president's been lied to. They're pretty sure they've been lied to. They're not happy about it, and they want to see changes made. And they, they've obviously, a few of them had some of these very high-level classified uh, briefings. And instead of tamping down their enthusiasm for transparency, it seems to have simply made them more insistent than ever before that it's time to get moving on that. So, yeah, I think things Absolutely. are starting to change in Washington, D.C., so moving on to the rest yeah. of the week's news, I think it would be um, improper if we didn't acknowledge the passing of the legendary John Lear, a very right. controversial figure who uh, was probably best known as an associate of the controversial and equally controversial character Bob Lazar in Las Vegas. John Lear, of, what was he? He was a former Air America pilot. He was the son of the chap who developed Lear Aviation, the the you know some of the great developments in um, aviation in the nineteen forties and the nineteen fifties, but um, he he was instrumental, wasn't he, in pushing a oh. large number of the uh, conspiracy theories about Area well, Fifty One. He was, and I remember for many years how uh, a number of people wrote him off and said, "Well, there goes John." Right, and of course, the more that we hear that people have. Uh, uh, admitted the reality of UAP, the more you have to say, well, I don't know, let's revisit what he did have to say. I met John Lear uh, in the 90s when I was doing the NBC series Dark Skies. And I can't remember who connected us, but uh, I think we had dinner and um, I found him fascinating. And uh, again, at the time, I didn't have a journalism hat on as much as I had my entertainment hat on. So it was fine for me to hear all the wild ideas that he might have had because I thought, well, you know, maybe I can use that stuff. Now, whether I believed it all at the time, I, I'm pretty sure I did not. Uh, and I do think uh, it's worth uh, our, our time and effort to look into what he was saying, because if there's nothing else you could say about John Lear, it would be that he was persistent. Uh, he continued to espouse these ideas and he continued to say that there was something uh you know, very large, very strange going on, and that we weren't being told the truth about it. Now, Bryce, the other thing that you and I have shown an incredible ability to predict 
was the uh, the controversial issue of whether or not UAPs cause harm to humans. Now, our last episode uh, happened to come at a time just before the re- the re-release of the Dirt, which right. was essentially one of the uh, documents that was prepared by the ORSAP internal Pentagon UFO investigation program, which investigated claims of UAPs having an adverse influence on human health. And this document, which had already been released, was re-released in longer part by an FOI obtained by the Sun newspaper in the United States. And it went bananas around the world. And One thing I I want to note about that case is a lot of people are basically saying that um, Kit Green and Gary Nolan, uh, who've both made comments in the last few weeks about health effects from UAPs, that they were being misquoted, that that essentially there were misrepresentations being made about Mm. what both men said. Frankly, I don't agree. I think the reality is that both Kit Green and Gary Nolan made statements that appeared to be suggesting that UAPs were responsible for adverse health effects on humans. Even a direct reading of what they said in those recorded interviews is very, very clear that they were asserting that UFOs had caused adverse health effects. And then about a week after they said it, they both walked back from those comments. Yeah. Now, I think it's unusual. I've listened to many of the same interviews you have. I, I They are trying to walk back certain things, but they did say certain things as well. I think the whole walking back uh, uh, syndrome uh, is one that you have to take with a grain of salt. Uh, I remember when Harry Reid was interviewed about crash wreckage for the New York Times and, and basically said that it was a real deal. And then he tried to walk it back the next day. The skeptic in me said, I'm going to go with what he said the first time, because when something you say gets printed or or gets traction, the, you, the reason most people walk something back is they don't like the traction it's getting and they want to, they want to put that away. So I think, but, but, but I think there's even a larger question. Why do you think that suddenly the idea of harm and the idea that uh, there is a, a negative uh, encounter with UAP that we need to take into account has gained such traction. Because remember, in the in the um, the new Gillibrand amendment that has been passed into law and signed by the president, uh, they talk about that. So clearly, uh, it's not something that you and I just made up, or other people who like to talk about UFOs and UAP is making up. The government itself is is saying we should look into it. Yeah, look, I don't know, quite frankly, I don't know why Kit Green and Professor Gary Nolan were walking back a little bit from what they said, because frankly, the evidence is overwhelming that there is harm caused by UAPs. I talked about my friend, my Australian friend, Damien Knott, very respected researcher here in Australia, who we're still trying, by the way, to to get some medical help. We've had a few offers from doctors in the United States who've said that if they, uh, if we can get Damien across to the United States, he can get help there. But um, uh, no help yet from Australia. If anybody here is an expert on radiation injuries in Australia and they want to help a good bloke here in Australia, please let us know. You know, you're but so the, right. um, uh, we put some of those photos in of, uh, of Damien and his injuries that he sustained, and they were too much for some people. We did get some pushback from people saying, I don't want to look at that stuff. That's very triggering for me. And I guess my attitude is, um, yeah, well, if it's triggering, then maybe it's triggering for a good reason. And secondly, I don't think it's, uh, you know, some people are saying, why do you even do this stuff? And it's not like we're doing it all the time. We're just saying that if you're going to take a wide uh, look at the UAP uh, issue, then you're going to have to look at, at all of it. And I think that is clearly one part of it. And I think we're going to have to live with that for a while. It doesn't mean uh, that that's all one should focus on. But I think to say that you shouldn't focus on a possible negative uh, either motive or, or uh, effect is just wrong. You've got to talk about it. Now, Bryce, before I flag what's coming up in the second section of our uh, Need to Know podcast this week, I want you to explain a little bit about yourself. I mean, Mm. a lot of people know you as the the 
the writer, the creator of the Dark Skies uh, uh, drama series, which I, I love. It's a fantastic series, kind of a precursor to X-Files. And I know you also as the author of After Disclosure, but a lot of people don't know that you're a journo by background, that right. you, you've worked as an investigative journalist. Well, God bless you, son, for bringing that up. No, it is kind of funny. I, I compared someone uh, the other day. I said, I think a lot of people think that I'm Ed McMahon to uh, Ross Coltart's Johnny Carson, uh, which I don't know if that comparison even flies in Australia. But I would love Johnny to just Carson. tell people uh, just a tad of of where I come from. I I got a degree in in uh, journalism at the University of Oregon with an emphasis in broadcast news. And I was lucky enough straight out of college to go to work in the television news business, worked for a number of years in local markets, first came to Los Angeles as CNN's, CNN's original hard news correspondent, which was just a fascinating time period. I, you know, I've, I got to cover the big stories. I got to cover presidential campaigns and space shuttle landings and launches. And then I went to PBS for a while and, and worked as an investigative reporter there, as, as you are currently today, and uh, won my share of awards for that as well. So I sort of thought that was going to be my life. And what ended up happening to me anyway is that the show I was working on at PBS, the investigative news show, got canceled. And so the question was, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to become one of these have suitcase, will travel anchormen and end up in Buffalo or wherever it would be? And she said, well, have you ever seen a screenplay? And I said that I had not. And so we got our hands on one and I read it and I said, you know, it doesn't look like it has too many adjectives or adverbs in it. Maybe I could write a nice terse version of a, of a screenplay. And I did. And I actually sold that. It was called ENG for Electronic News Gathering, which is, of course, about television news. Uh, Canada bought it. They made 110 episodes of it, I think. And, and uh, you know, that's so I decided to stay in Hollywood and keep doing that. However, and the, the essence of what you're asking is, I think if you're a, a trained journalist, you never stop being that. Uh, being a journalist is what's made me a good screenwriter because I've seen thousands and thousands of people. And quite often, and you'll, I'm sure you can attest to this, when you see somebody, it's, either the, it's quite often the best day of their life or the worst day of their life. And so you really see the highs and lows of the human condition, which I think is not only good for a journalist, but also good for a writer. So again, thank you for bringing that up. Now, one thing we know, Bryce, is that in the area of UAPs, UFOs, truth is often stranger than fiction. So that's why I'm quite excited about what we've coming up, got coming up next. Do you want to flag what we've got coming up? Absolutely. In the next you know, folks, coming up in our next segment, we're going to focus, as I said, on rock stars who claim to have had a UFO experience. And, and Ross is going to be walking us through that oh-so-strange case of Blink-182's Tom DeLonge. And I'll be talking about a case that I spent a lot of time looking into last year, and that's the UFO sighting by John Lennon back in 1974 outside his New York penthouse apartment. And uh, we're going to get into that, and we're going to see that you scratch the surface of a rock star, sometimes you get something you weren't even thinking you'd find. And that's what makes this interesting. So stick around, and we'll see what we do all about that. Believe us, there's a method to this madness. Need to Know continues in a moment. So welcome back to Need to Know. I, I want to talk now about a guy called Tom DeLong, who's probably been one of the most unfairly maligned people in the field of UAP UFO research. Tom was, until a few years ago, the lead singer of the very popular punk pop band Blink-182. Now, he always had an interest in UFOs, UAPs. And around about 2015, 2016, in the run-up to the Hillary Clinton-Donald Trump election campaign, he started taking a very prominent position in asserting that he was in touch with people at the highest levels of the Department of Defense, the National Security Agency, the military, the intelligence services in the United States. And he was making a series of what sounded like wild claims that, that he was being briefed about things pertaining to UAPs. He made some absolutely extraordinary assertions. According to him, 
he was being told that there had been some kind of presence of what these people called the others on planet Earth for thousands of years, that it was linked back to ancient civilizations that were the precursors even before the Sumerian civilization, that there was in fact a a, a group known as the Anunnaki that had basically visited planet Earth that uh, essentially uh, were involved in um, uh, encouraging the uh, creation of intelligent human beings and civilization, that they seeded the planet with um, culture, with learning, with scientific knowledge. This all sounded very, very wild. And a lot of people chuckled and dismissed Tom DeLong. So why do I think Tom DeLong is important in the narrative of recent UAP history? Well, I can tell you the reason I think Tom DeLong is important is because of a bunch of Russian hackers from a military intelligence service in Moscow called the GRU. This is an incredible story, and I think it's been overlooked by a lot of people in ufology because the GRU, the Russian intelligence service, were trying to help, even though a lot of people may dispute this, they were genuinely trying to help Donald Trump win the election campaign. And in the course of that battle, they hacked into the DNC, the Democratic National Congress Committee's uh, email system, and they procured emails showing that John Podesta, who was one of the senior campaign officials for Hillary Clinton, a former Barack Obama and Bill Clinton White House senior advisor, John Podesta was in touch with Tom DeLong talking about UFO disclosure. And I, I talk to anyone who, who's prepared to listen about this because I think this is extraordinarily significant. Because in journalism, what you look for is you look for corroboration. And here we have, ironically, as a result of determined criminal hacking by Russian intelligence, we have evidence in the form of emails which shows that Tom DeLong really was speaking to people who were at a senior level in the Pentagon, in the Department of Defense, and in the intelligence services. One of them was a guy called General Neil McCasland, and another one was a guy called General Michael Carey. Neil McCasland used to be at what is apocryphally known as the Foreign Technology Division in the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. He was one of the senior generals who handled, if you like, the back engineering of recovered non-American technology. And apocryphally, mythically, that's the place where a lot of the alleged recovered non-human technology has been taken from places like Roswell and other alleged UAP crashes. If anyone knows where the bodies are buried in ufology, it's General Neil McCasland. And the other person is General Michael Carey. Michael Carey was based out of NORAD, which is the um, cooperative body between Canada and the United States that does early warning of intercontinental ballistic missiles, but also has tapped into a worldwide monitoring system for not just ICBM launches, but also for any evidence of um, orbital technology that is not part of America's technology. It was primarily aimed, of course, of keeping an eye on the, the Russians, the Chinese, and the North Koreans, and perhaps also any other nation like the, the Indians and the Pakistanis that might be attempting any kind of improper use of nuclear technology. What's very, very interesting is that we know from those leaked emails that were provided to WikiLeaks that you can still read online, and you can read about them in my book, it's just the most extraordinary series of evidence which shows definitively that Tom DeLong was in touch with senior people as he asserted that he was. He was being briefed by them, told incredible things. And I think this is, this is the important thing for me, Bryce. I think in the run-up to the Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump election, my hypothesis is that people in the Defence Department 
in the American intelligence community strongly believed that Hillary Clinton was going to be the new president. Nobody thought it was possible that Donald Trump was going to win the presidency. And they were anticipating that Hillary Clinton was going to become the president. And so they were preparing for her to be what she'd promised to be, which was the disclosure president. That's a, a a good theory, and I think it's probably true because I, you know, obviously a lot of people uh, knew that she was into that, and and I think a lot of people obviously did not think that Trump was going to win. But that's not the question I had. The question I have is, I love hearing you explain all that and how these very high level people who would know where the bodies literally are buried or put away, and where the ships are and things like that, who are high level people. Why would they confide in such an unreliable messenger as Tom DeLong? I mean, <clears throat> it, you know, we talk about message discipline in, uh, it, you know, in the business and people, you know, who are, you know, meeting the news uh, and, and making news. They and politicians, everybody's got message discipline where they, they know what they're supposed to say, what they're not supposed to say. Tom DeLong doesn't seem to have any message discipline. He just is out there. He says what he's going to say. Okay. Why pick him? Okay, I have a theory about this, and this is only speculative. But in the emails, it's quite clear that on occasion, and Tom's actually admitted this in some of his many interviews on the subject, he was <clears> prepared <throat> to allow what he said publicly to be vetted and approved. He was offering himself okay. essentially as a communications mouthpiece for the defense and intelligence services in your country. And a journalist, a mainstream journalist like myself or yourself, we would never, we could never agree to such terms. You don't compromise your ability to freely report on something by allowing your message to be <coughs> tempered by the people who are telling it to you. Because I do believe, I really do, I, I do believe that crimes have been committed, that, that, and I'm not suggesting it was General Neil McCasland or General Michael Carey, but somebody inside the defence or intelligence hierarchy, and probably also in private aerospace in the United States, has been lying, well, actively misleading government. And those are crimes. It's a contempt of the Congress to mislead a congressional it, oversight committee. It and totally that's what is. I believe has happened here. And and I I I think I agree with you on that. But I still, at the end of the day, I, I, frankly, I like Tom DeLong. I, I I'm I don't really know his music very well, but I've enjoyed hearing him talk on the air and and all of that. But if the point was he was willing to stick to the message that was cleared by his his handlers. Then I just flash back to so many different interviews he did, but no, most notably he did one with uh, Joe Rogan on Joe Rogan's show very early on in his launch. And, and he was talking about things that I can't even imagine an, uh, the Air Force or the Navy or anyone at the Department of Defense thought he should be talking about unless they were there was another agenda that they wanted him to stray so far from the reservation that it accomplished something else. But that's just my question and theory, but I do have another question about him. He started uh, the Two of the Stars Academy, which uh, I think most people will admit uh, was very effective in the day. And uh, at the beginning, it managed to uh, uh, cooperate with those videos, and it brought in a lot of people, uh, Elizondo and Mellon and, and uh, Justice and all these uh, names of people who were deeply inside the government and knew things. After such an auspicious stop start, those people are gone now. What happened to DeLong and his TTSA, and why is he now in uh, the Witness Protection Program of Ufology? I think that it's because fundamentally TTSA to the Stars Academy was conceived in expectation of a Hillary Clinton victory. Uh, it's quite clear, and, and I, I advise anybody who's interested in the history of this to look at the Podesta emails that are leaked onto WikiLeaks, and they show very, very clearly that General Neil McCasland was actually talking to the potential Hillary Clinton White House campaign manager, policy advisor, about how the message of disclosure could be communicated to the American public. It's quite clear to me that Hillary Clinton was going to order the files to be opened and the doors to be opened, transparency to happen on UAPs shortly after she became president. And I think it all fell in a heap when Donald Trump 
became president. What if that had happened, where would we be now? And and what happened instead when it was Trump? Did anyone even talk to him about it? What what happened? Oh, I think Trump was briefed. I think Trump was told something because, as you recall, his uh, son, Don Trump Jr., did an interview with him shortly before the election where he asked his dad about Roswell. You know, Dad, what's all this stuff about UFOs? And his father intimated that he knew something about Roswell. And he went, that's very interesting. But I can't talk about that. Well, if anyone has ever demonstrated a lack of message discipline uh, that could rival uh, Tom DeLonge, it might be Donald Trump. So, and and they're both in they were both in interesting positions. I don't know. There's more to know about this. I look forward to us in the future revisiting who knew what, when, and what the plan was, and how it's changed. Now, look, we've saved the biggest rock star for last. In our next segment, Bryce is going to tell us what he's learned from his nearly year-long investigation into the John Lennon UFO sighting. It's an amazing story, and I had no idea, Bryce, about the details that you've turned up. Um, I've also just learned that you've written a book, Bryce, about the Beatles. So John Lennon seeing a UFO lets you talk about two of your favourite things at the same time. Stay with us. We're back in a moment because you need to know. Over here, up there, I saw a UFO and it went down the river, turned right at the United Nations, turned left and then down the river. It wasn't a helicopter, it wasn't a balloon and it was so near. And it looked what sort of uh, round, white, reminiscent and silent. Silent and it looked dark like black or gray in the middle and had white lights, just looked like light bulbs, you know, just going off, on, off, on, off, on, blink, 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 around the bottom and on top was a red light. You know, I still think a lot about John Lennon. What if Lennon hadn't been murdered 42 years ago this coming December? If he'd kept his health, he'd be 82 years old this October 9th. Now, if that octogenarian John Lennon were still with us today, I think he'd be talking about today's news. He'd probably have a Twitter account, the real John Lennon, and he'd be writing some of the wittiest tweets that are out there, uh, probably like an angry Steve Martin. And he'd be commenting on our broken politics and probably talking about the pandemic we're living through, race issues, climate change, nuclear threats, Ukraine, and, and frankly, how our inhumanity to humanity was going to kill us all. But but he would also be talking about UAP, and he would be keenly aware of this moment we're living in. He'd know about the Gillibrand Amendment, last year's UAP report, the Nimitz, and he'd probably have Lou Elizondo on his Apple phone for speed dial. All that, and I bet he would still be talking about the UFO that he saw on August 23rd, 1974. He would have told this story so many times that he'd have lost count. It was a huge event in his life. He told his friends. He had the sighting, and he called in to the New York Daily News and the NYPD. He released a sketch that he'd made immediately after the event. He granted interviews to reporters. He put his claim in the liner notes of his upcoming Walls and Bridges album. He wasn't shy. And shortly before his death in 1980, he recorded a a song uh, with a lyric that said there were UFOs over New York. And it wasn't even the first UFO song that he had recorded. He had done one uh, earlier, years earlier. So that's what I want to do today. I want to talk about the sighting with you folks, because sadly, John Lennon is not here to tell the story himself. The truth is that people tend to dismiss his sighting because there are so many other great cases and the obvious problem. Hey, it's a John Lennon UFO story, right? I'm here to tell you that such an easy and casual dismissal aimed at getting a laugh is a mistake, particularly in this day and age when the U.S. government actually admits to the reality of unidentified aerial phenomena. That puts a lot of things back on the table, including the Lennon sighting. Okay, then, let's wind the clock back to August of 1974. It's August 23rd. The sighting took place that night, and that was exactly two weeks to the day since Richard Nixon had resigned his presidency in disgrace. Back then, newly sworn in President Gerald Ford was still learning how to make toast in the family quarters of the White House, and that was big news. So in this brief window of time, there was hope in America again. 
The stranglehold that Richard Nixon had on our national psyche had been broken. The system actually did look like it had worked and let us throw the bum out. And even Vietnam was winding down. But all was not well in Lenin's world when this happened. The U.S. government was trying to throw him out of the country, and his immigration case consumed much of his time. And he'd been broken up for over a year at this point with Yoko Ono. He'd moved to Los Angeles with their assistant, a young woman named, named May Pang. She was just 22. And it was his so-called lost weekend, fueled by drugs and alcohol. And he ended up in the news looking like a celebrity who had lost control. And May Pang became an eyewitness to a series of embarrassing and spirit-crushing public run-ins about town. That was why he was back in New York City. In those last days of August, in the summer of 1974, John Lennon and May Pang were only in their second month of living at their penthouse apartment. And the address was 434 East 52nd Street in New York. It was a great apartment, had a view of Brooklyn's Navy shipyard docks, Lennon told friends that whenever he looked out, it reminded him of working-class Liverpool, where he grew up with the other Beatles. I mean, it was a very cool place. I think it sold recently for over $5 million. It had a wraparound outside patio with a view of the East River, and as it turned out, something else that wasn't supposed to be there at all. So that's the setup to this. Let me tell you what happened. It's around 9 o'clock at night. John Lennon is sitting in his bedroom. He's on the bed and he is looking over the Walls and Bridges album artwork to see, you know, whether he approved of it or not. He is naked. Okay. That's part of the story you can't get away from. May Pang has called in pizza. She's in the house. She's naked. All right. Lennon, while he's working on this thing, looks outside the window and sees something that he can't explain. So he runs out onto the patio and he sees something that he describes later as about the size of a Learjet. And it's so close that in various tellings, he said you could throw a, a brick at it and hit it. So he starts screaming, May, you got to come out here. You got to come out here. And she's not coming. And he starts screaming, You got to come out here now. So she comes out. And now you've got two people, two naked people in New York City standing on their penthouse. And they're looking at something in the sky that is hovering and it's completely silent. And this is what it looks like. It looks like a cone and it's got a red bright light on the top. And on the bottom, it has a series of what Lennon would describe as light bulbs that were alternating around the bottom of it. Blink on, blink off, blink on, blink off. And they take a good, hard look at this thing. And according to both of them, it was there at least 10 minutes. And in the middle of it, it does something that very few people were making up at that time. Very few people had reported this kind of behavior at the time. It goes sideways, which blew May Pang away. She was like, what is it doing? It went like this, and then suddenly it was sideways. And it begins to move slowly down the East River as Lennon and May Pang watch this thing. And it goes down the river. It's, it's going slowly. It's silent. A lot of the windows in the area are closed because people are gone for the summer. It was very, uh, that's the kind of neighborhood it was. And it goes down past the United Nations building. And as they're watching it, it then goes up in the sky and it's gone. But it's an extended sighting. And the idea that it had these lights and they were twinkling and there were different colors is not something that would even be in Close Encounters until 1977 when Spielberg made it. So what does he do? He immediately goes to work uh, trying to make his recollection clear. He makes a, 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 he was famous for sketches, and he makes several sketches of this UFO. And he also uh, calls his friend Bob Gruen, who was the photographer, who would end up taking that famous photo of John Lennon with the ripped T-shirt that says New York City. And he tells him to come over because May has taken photos. Bob takes the camera back. He takes the film out. He develops the photos and the photos don't show anything. They're, they're blank. They look like it's been through, rate, uh, through the detector at the airport, little sprocket holes, and that's about it, uh, blasted out. 
they call the police. Lennon doesn't call the police because he's afraid if he says that I'm John Lennon and I saw a UFO, nobody's going to really care. So he has Gruen call the police. Gruen calls the police, the NYPD uh, blue people. They say they've got several reports of it that night. He also calls the New York Daily News. They say they've seen about uh, five other reports on that. May Pang would later say in an interview that there were 400 other people who saw it. Now, I don't know about all that. I don't know because I haven't been able to find any more of these witnesses. I do know that in 1983, when I was working in Los Angeles for KABC, I met May Pang. She told me this story herself. She wrote about it in her book, Loving John. And it's always stayed with me as a, a, a phenomenal story for a couple of reasons. First, this is the man that wrote the famous song, Give Me Some Truth. He was a man that told things the way he saw them. I don't think anybody can doubt that. So here's a guy that wants the truth, and he immediately tells this crazy story about seeing a UFO. And he tells it at a time when it would have a, be a problem for him. I mean, he's got this immigration case going on. The last thing he needs is for people to think that he's busy seeing UFOs while he's naked. That's not a good look for him. But he tells the story anyway, and he sticks with it all his life. It's corroborated by May Pang, who seems like a very credible witness if you hear her talk about it. And not only that, four months before he passed away, because he was murdered in New York City in December, on December 8th of 1980, he records a song called um, Nobody Told Me. And that song includes the phrase, there's UFOs over New York, and I ain't too surprised. And he includes it on that famous album artwork. He puts it out there, he sticks with the story, and he never changes it. So that's my John Lennon story. Can I say, Bryce, that's a fascinating story. I mean, okay, let me be flippant for a moment. Yeah. Is it possible that John Lennon was just doing drugs with May well, Pang that night, and then they were having hallucinations. That's what, you know, the easy way to dismiss it is to say that. Uh, both Pang, uh, Pang did not do drugs. She had a Coca-Cola habit that wouldn't quit, but she didn't do drugs. Uh, John Lennon had been on his last weekend in Los Angeles, where admittedly he did drugs and he did, uh, he drank too much and he made a fool of himself in a few public uh, situations. But at the time, he was not on drugs. He states he wasn't on drugs. He hadn't been on drugs, according to his friends. And even if you're on drugs, I don't know that you would ordinarily just see flashing UFOs. And the final thing I would say about that is you would have to dismiss it as performance art. Like Yo John and Yoko, of course, did the famous bed in in Toronto for peace. You'd have to say, well, maybe he thinks it's all a big piece of performance art. But I don't think so. I don't think you stick with that all your life. Okay, let's be open-minded about this for a moment. Let's assume that there is some non-human intelligence trying to engage with humanity, trying to slowly encourage people to become aware of the fact that right. it's real. Wouldn't it be the best way to try and communicate with one of the most iconic cultural figures of our time, to plant the seed in his brain that there is a reality that people haven't yet acknowledged? Well, I'm, I mean, people have made that argument, and I can't say that I find fault with the argument. I don't. I haven't found any personal evidence that would include him even believing that he was the chosen one to receive this kind of, you know, special knowledge. But I would think, I've had to think about the nature of of reality in studying this thing because I wanted to see those four hundred witnesses, or I'd at least like to see that the newspaper wrote about it. But unfortunately, we, as we've talked about on many shows, the news media has, is still slow to recognize this phenomenon. And they certainly were very slow back then. So even though they had John Lennon and other people calling the Daily News, there is not a whiff of this story in the Daily News from that time period, right? And it raises questions. There appeared to be a physical reality to at least John Lennon and May Pang and to a few other people. Does that mean it was physically real the entire time? Or does that mean that John Lennon saw it as physically real? And that would make it, that wouldn't necessarily discredit it as an observation, would it? Because uh, many people see these things in our skies and we are yet to say all of them are physically real. We believe there's another aspect to this. I find that whole story fascinating, not least because yet again, 
it's it's actually quite a credible sighting. It's corroborated. Yes. Uh, you know, he's got his girlfriend with him, and she's saying she saw it as well. And as you say, there was nothing to gain from him to talk about that. But just before we go today, I actually think it's worth recording that there are numerous other rock stars who've said similar things about encounters with UAPs. Just to name a few, Cat Stevens, Jimi Hendrix, David Bowie, Olivia Newton-John, Sammy Hagar from Van Halen, Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, Sting. They've all got their own stories about UAPs or encounters with UAPs, sightings or even more intense personal experiences. I guess what it does show is that there's a wide range of experience there of famous people who claim they've had an interaction with the phenomenon. It can't all be a coincidence, can it, Brian? Well, I mean, let's face it. Uh, the easy dismissal is to say, well, rock stars are off their rockers a little bit. And, and you know, you can you can sort of cast dispersions. Um, and I, I, I think we could do a show sometime talking about what these other people saw. But what the other people saw have has, has fewer credible, sustaining thoughts to it than the Lennon story. I mean, this is a man who didn't benefit by telling the story, but was passionate about it. According to May Pang, you know, after this was over, he, you know, after he'd seen it, he wanted to talk about it all the time. And in fact, there's a recording that May Pang uh, made uh, shortly after this thing, where John Lennon waxes philosophical on the topic of UFOs. And he ends up talking about something that when I wrote the book AD After Disclosure with uh, Richard Dolan, I, I fell in love with this quote because I thought, you know, he's actually thinking about the big picture and he's moved on from just thinking about what he saw and trying to figure out, well, what does it mean in the grand scheme of things? This is the quote from John Lennon. And by the way, May Pang, I believe, still has that recording. And if May is listening, may I urge you to let people hear John Lennon say what I'm about to say in his own words, but here we go, in his own voice. He said, quote, if the masses started to accept UFOs, it would profoundly affect their attitudes toward life, politics, everything. It would threaten the status quo. Whenever people come to realize that there are larger considerations than their own petty lives, they are ripe to make radical changes on a personal level, which would eventually lead to a political revolution in society as a whole. Now, I just find that to be advanced level thinking, and I don't think that's from somebody who's just making it all up. And on that note, folks, I think it's time to bring an end to this week's Need to Know conversation. We know you're busy and we deeply appreciate the time and the attention that you give us. Until next time, Bryce. Remember, we can handle the truth, folks, and people get ready. Need to Know with Coltart and Sable is a joint effort of Stellar Productions and Powerful Owl Productions. I'm producer Rich Johnson, and you can learn more about the show at needtoknow.today. That's needtoknow.today. Need to Know.